Today's sermon comes from Galatians 5:26 through 6:10. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Consider the following scenarios. A teenager makes choices to honor the Lord and is ostracized by classmates and friends, resulting in isolation and rejection and causing him to wonder if it's worth it to continue living a life of obedience. A mother pours the gospel into her children, making daily sacrifices, and they seem to show no interest in Jesus. She grows weary of pouring herself out. A single person commits to seeking the Lord, looking to date someone who loves Christ, but years later has found no one, leaving her wondering if it's worth it to keep such high standards. A businessman makes sound ethical decisions and watches coworkers cut corners, spin the truth, and get promoted leaving him wondering if it's worth it to continue to do what is right before Christ, even if it costs him success in the business world. A friend comes alongside a friend who has fallen into sin to help restore him. After all the sacrifices of time, money, and energy, the friend doesn't seem to be responding to Christ and turning from sin. He's weary of helping this friend and doesn't feel like he can press on. A husband takes care of his ailing wife who suffers from debilitating mental illness for a decade and watches colleagues choose divorce because they don't get along anymore. He grows angry and weary. How do you not grow weary of doing good? Paul gives the command in verse 9. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. But in a broken world, in our broken flesh, in the midst of sin, it's very tempting to quit doing good, to give up, because it's just hard. And there's a weariness that sets in, and Paul says, don't give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. But the question is, how? And maybe you're here this morning at the place of weariness that has you on the edge. 
saying, I don't know that I have anything left in me. I'm so weary. How am I not supposed to give up with what I'm facing? How do you not grow weary of doing good? We're gonna answer that by answering two questions. First, what is the good we're called to do? And then what causes us to grow weary in doing that good? And we'll go back and forth between those two questions as we work through the passage. So first, what's the good that we are to do? Look at verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is describing the situation where someone is caught in sin. Someone is caught in transgression, and the command is to restore that person. Now, the word restore here, it means to return to the former condition. It's actually a medical term that means to set a broken bone or to set a dislocated joint. So the command is, if somebody has been dislocated by sin, that we are called to restore that person. But how? But how? It says in a spirit of gentleness. That can also read in a spirit of humility. Now, what does that mean that you move towards someone that has been caught in sin with a spirit of gentleness? Well, Paul's going to, over the course of three verses, explain the opposite of a spirit of gentleness or a spirit of humility. He's over three verses going to explain how you will be prevented from moving towards someone, right, to restore them when they've been caught in sin. What is it that will prevent you from moving towards someone in the spirit of gentleness or humility? Look at verse three. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Pride. That's speaking of spiritual pride. It's what Paul's talking about at the end of verse one when he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What is the temptation that's in view here? It's the temptation towards pride. It's the temptation to move towards somebody that has sinned and to move towards them in judgment or superiority over them. Not realizing that you're vulnerable to the same sin It's moving towards somebody in their sin, not thinking that you're really capable of that sin, that you've risen above that sin, that you're victorious over it, right? That's the the temptation of pride that Paul's speaking of here. And that when you move towards someone with that spirit of pride or superiority, that you will not be able to restore them. That's not a spirit of gentleness. And if we don't quite get the danger of pride that Paul's already laid out in two verses, He reinforces it a third time. Look at verse four. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. What does this mean? It means quit comparing yourself to your neighbor. Quit pridefully comparing yourself to your neighbor. Feeling like you have to be better than them or feeling like you have to move into a situation better than someone else. He's he's just repeating the danger of pride here and how pride will absolutely prevent the process of restoration. 
It will keep you from moving in with a spirit of gentleness. If you move in to restore someone who has fallen into sin, and you don't believe functionally at a heart level that you are capable of committing that same sin, then three things are going to happen. Three things are going to happen if you move in with that sort of pride. Number one, in pride, you're going to be overly simplistic and formulaic about how you counsel that person. Let me give you an example. If you're moving in to restore someone who has fallen into pornography and you don't struggle with it yourself and you don't believe you ever will struggle with it, you believe you've kind of risen above that, that that's, that's not something you struggle with, then you're going to move into that person and give counsel towards restoration that is very simplistic. You know, read this verse and pray and you'll be fine. Your friend takes the counsel. They read that verse, they pray, and it doesn't help. And so you, you subtly, maybe unconsciously, start to begin to feel this, this superiority about your discipline and how disciplined you are and how they're not and how they're not following through and how they really must not want healing. You move in simplistic. You move in formulaic. And then let me just imagine in this situation, you find out some more information. You find out that this person was exposed to it very early at the age of eight by his older brothers in a, in a, a non-believing household, non-Christian home, and it was wide open. And from age eight, at a developmental age, brain developing view of the world, view of women, view of sexuality, that was when he was exposed regularly from age eight on. Now you grow up in a Christian home. You grew up where parents were vigilant. You grew up not seeing it, not being exposed to it. And so you don't struggle with it. Don't you see the grace that God has afforded you? And so you don't move in simplistically. When you realize that, and, and here's the, Sin is not just a poor choice. It's not just a bad decision. Sin is a sickness. It's a disease. And when you understand that and you understand someone's story, you move in very differently. You move in with a lot more compassion. And there's no room for pride. No room for pride. A stewardess once told heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali to prepare for takeoff. And he objected, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman don't need no airplane. Listen. When it comes to a particular sin, you may feel like, I don't need accountability. I've never struggled with that. I'm, I'm disciplined in that area. I don't need help in that area. I'm good. 
And if someone falls into their sin in that area, I, I got the answer for them. They just need to be more disciplined. They just need to pray more. Right? There, there can be this, this aura of superiority and pride that's not moving in with a spirit of gentleness, not moving in with a spirit of humility and compassion. It comes across as judgment and harshness, which does not bring restoration. If you move in to restore someone who has fallen into sin and you don't believe you're capable at a, functionally capable at a heart level of committing that sin, then you'll be overly simplistic. You'll move in with judgment. Number two, you will not bear one another's burdens. Verse two, bear one another's burdens. That literally means to carry someone's load. The word means to carry If you believe you have conquered sin in your own strength by your own discipline, then when you move in to restore someone who has fallen into sin, you will believe that they're in sin because they weren't disciplined enough. They're not doing their part, and so you certainly won't carry their load because they should be carrying their own load if they would just do X, Y, and Z. And yet in the example I gave of this person who struggles with pornography and it started at age eight, bearing that person's burden means you bear their story from age eight. That's awful. And you bear that weight and you bear that hurt with them. You bear their burden. It, listen, if, if a man has a broken leg you would not ask him to carry his groceries up three flights of stairs. You would carry his groceries for him so that his leg has a chance to heal. I said it, sin is not just a bad decision. It's not just a poor choice. It's a sickness, it's a disease that Jesus has healed and is healing. But when we bear one another's burdens, we carry their load to help them heal, to help them find victory. But if you don't feel like you're capable of committing that sin, you won't bear their load. You'll ask them to bear their own load if they would just do this. So pride will cause you to move in judgmentally and harshly. Pride will prevent you from bearing that person's burdens. And third, pride will cause you to move towards that person in isolation. Let me explain that. Look at verse five. It's a really odd verse. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, this seems contradictory. Paul, what is it? Verse two, bear one another's burdens. Verse five, bear your own load. What's he talking about there? Well, the, the word for bear in the original language that the New Testament was written in, which is Greek, the word for bear in verse two and verse five is different. The word for bear in verse two refers to a very heavy load. The word for bear in verse five refers to a very light load. It's almost like a backpack. What does it mean in verse five when Paul says, for each will have to bear his own load? He's saying we are responsible for the gifts that God has given us. So verse four, he says, quit comparing yourself to your neighbor. 
Quit comparing yourself to the gifts of your neighbor. God has given you gifts and that's all you're responsible for. Now, what's this have to do with moving in to restore someone? It means that when you move in to restore someone who is caught in sin, you don't have to be everything to that person. You don't have to have every gift possible they need. We want that. A lot of times we move in, we want to be the hero. We want to be the Messiah. We want that person to feel like that. You, you changed my life. You did everything. And what Paul's saying is, listen, you're responsible for your gift. It takes more than one person to bring restoration. In fact, look at verse one again. You who are spiritual should restore him. That word you is in the plural. That means y'all. Or if you're in Pittsburgh, yins. Y'all, yins, restore him. Him is singular. That means that restoration is a communal project. That means that when someone's caught in sin, they need the variety of gifts in the body of Christ to help bring restoration. What is the good we are to do? We're to restore one another and we're to bear one another's burdens. And we're to do this in a spirit of gentleness. What prevents this from happening? Pride, spiritual pride. But there's another good we're called to do. And another thing that will prevent that good from happening in verses six to 10. So we're called to restore one another, bear one another's burdens. And then we see in verses six to 10, we're called to share, to share all good things with one another. Look at verse six. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. This is a great verse for me to speak about. You all need to share good things with me because I'm teaching you right now. What, what does it mean? What does it mean? It's actually a parallel verse to 1 Corinthians 9, 14. It says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel or teach the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul is speaking broadly here about the call to share all good things or to support the ministry of God's word, being taught, being proclaimed. And he uses the reaping and sowing language here, which lines up with Jesus teaching in the parable of the soils when he uses reaping and sowing, when he speaks of the farmer who scatters seed or sows seed. And it says the seed that falls on good soil produces a harvest, right? There, you reap a harvest. Of course, Jesus explains that parable and says the seed is like the word of God being sown on the human heart or the soil of the human heart. So what Paul's saying here is the good we're to do is to share or to support the ministry of God's word going out of those who teach it, casting that seed on human heart, that it would fall on hearts and that hearts would turn to Christ, right? That's the ministry of God's word. We're called to support that through a church, through a mission organization, whatever it is around the world that is sowing the seeds of God's word and those that are teaching and proclaiming it. And it's not just the word proclaim, but it's the word 
displayed as well in verses 9 and 10. When Paul speaks about doing good, he's certainly talking about that sharing of your, your goods with those who are proclaiming the word, but it's also sharing with those who are in need of the word, not just proclaim, but in deed. So the gospel in word and deed. When Jesus describes in Matthew 25, the good of feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, showing hospitality to strangers, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, visiting prisoners, right? This is the call here. The good is to support God's word going out, the gospel going out in word and deed, and sharing all good things for that purpose and that endeavor. Now, why following verse six does Paul say in verse seven, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. What is the deception in verse seven that is being spoken about here? Here's the deception. It's the lie that I can do whatever I want and not be held accountable for it. Or another version of it, it's the lie that I can do whatever I want now and it will not impact my future. Or it's the lie of I can do whatever I want now and there will be no consequences in the future. Do not be deceived. What someone sows, they will reap. Sowing and reaping. What you sow, you will reap. And what you reap depends on where you sow. So Paul goes on in verse eight to say, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. If you sow to your flesh, you will reap corruption. Now, what does this mean? Well, at the end of chapter five, Paul lays out the works of the flesh. So what does it mean to sow to the flesh? I'll give you a few examples. Take the works of the flesh that center around sexual immorality, sensuality, impurity, and orgies. Take that whole works of the flesh category. If you engage sexually outside of your marriage, either before marriage or during marriage, if you engage sexually outside of marriage, you will experience immediate physical pleasure, but you will be sowing seeds of destruction that damage your capacity for true intimacy. So here, when it says, do not be deceived, here's the lie. I can do whatever I want before I get married, and it will not impact my intimacy in marriage. That's a lie. That what you do before marriage, if there's sexual immorality, that will damage your capacity for true intimacy in marriage, the same would hold for in marriage. If there's sexual immorality outside of the marriage, there's a lie that says, ah, it's okay. It won't have any impact. The reality is that damages your capacity for true intimacy in the marriage. That's what it means to sow to the flesh and to reap corruption, that you do reap destruction, you reap corruption. Take the other section of the works of the flesh, the middle section, strife, jealousy, 
rivalries, dissensions. If you gossip about someone or you slander someone, you are sowing seeds of destruction because that will destroy relationships. It will destroy community. Gossip and slander born out of envy produces isolation, anti-community. There's a cost. What you sow, you will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. You will reap, reap corruption. The reverse is true, though. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Listen to how John Stott says it. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. So what does it mean to, to sow to the Spirit? If that's sowing to the flesh, what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? Sowing to the Spirit means living for God's pleasure instead of for your own. Broadly put, sowing to the Spirit means living for God's pleasure rather than for your own. And so practically, that means investing your, your money, your, your time, your gifts, your very being into the kingdom of God. And that goes back to the means of grace we talked about last week. So when you, when you read your Bible, that's sowing to the Spirit. When you pray, that's sowing to the Spirit. When you go to your community group and you're in fellowship and you're talking about the Word and you're praying together, that's sowing to the Spirit. When you move in to restore someone who's fallen into sin with a spirit of gentleness, that's, that's sowing to the Spirit. When you give sacrificially, to missions organizations, to church, to, to charities, to, to your neighbors, when you give and it hurts, that's sowing to the Spirit. And the promise is, is that you'll reap, you'll reap a harvest. That's the good we are to do. Now, what causes us to grow weary of doing that good? Look at verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good for... In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. What causes us to give up is instant gratification. See, our world is fabricated around instant gratification. Businesses make lots of money off our, instant, our need for instant gratification. But the truth about sowing and reaping is that there is a period of time between sowing and reaping. There's a delay. It's not instant. But because we have such a strong need for instant gratification, we grow weary. We give up. And yet we read in, in James chapter 5, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So we, we lose heart. We grow impatient. We give up. 
because we want the harvest now, immediately. And yet there's a gap of time between sowing and reaping that demands patience, that demands patience. William Carey was the first modern missionary to India, and he landed on the subcontinent in 1793, and he began teaching the Bible and proclaiming the word to anybody he could speak to. And for seven years of doing that, seven years, not one person repented and turned to Christ. Seven years of sharing the gospel, of preaching the gospel, and not one conversion. He was discouraged, obviously. He wrote this to his family in England in the midst of one of those seasons of discouragement. I feel as a farmer does about his crop. Sometimes I think the seed is springing, and thus I hope a little time blasts all and my hopes are gone like a cloud. There were only weeds which appeared, or if a little corn sprung up, it quickly dies, being either choked with weeds or parched up by the sun of persecution. Yet I still hope in God and will go forth in his strength. And then in 1800, he baptized his first Hindu convert. Seven years later, and that was the first fruits of a huge harvest in India. Give you another example. Consider uh, this man, Luke Short. At the ripe old age of 103 in the colony of Virginia, this man at 103 was sitting underneath a hedge, and he recalled this sermon he had heard from the, the famous Puritan preacher, John Flavel, in the mid-1600s. He remembered this sermon and right there turned to God, asked forgiveness, and found life in Jesus Christ. He died three years later at 106, and this was what was written on his tomb. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. The sermon he remembered was preached 85 years before. He was a teenager. That seed was sown 80, almost a century earlier. And then there was a harvest at 103 years old. Isn't that phenomenal? To come to Christ at 103? Sowing and reaping. Have you grown weary of doing the good of restoring someone? Have you grown weary of bearing someone's burden? Have you grown weary of giving sacrificially? Maybe your money, maybe your time. Have you grown weary because there's no harvest? Look at verse 10. It says, as we have opportunity. The word for opportunity here is season or time. As we are in this season of sowing, we sow as much seed as possible. We sow the word as much as we can. We share it, we proclaim it, life to life, in a Bible study, in a community group. We sow the word, knowing that reaping is primarily for the life to come, that this lifetime is about sowing. This lifetime 
is about sowing. Psalm 126.5 says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Isn't that so true? Isn't a lot of our sowing in tears? We sow the word in tears. We sow restoring and, and, and bearing burdens and giving sacrificially. It hurts. It hurts because of our self-centered nature. It hurts to give and to give and to give. We sow in tears, but we will reap with shouts of joy. How do we know that? Look at verse two. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus Christ bore your burden of sin. He carried your load of sin. An entire life's worth, past, present, and future, entire world's worth. He carried that load to the cross. And like a seed, he was sown in the ground for three days. John chapter 12, Jesus says it this way. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus bore your burden of sin, and because of it, he was sown into the ground for three days, but three days later, he burst forth in the tomb. And that was the initial harvest where he brought life into your broken heart, this broken world, and the greater harvest is to come when he returns. And that means that you will reap a harvest with shouts of joy, but to set your perspective that this life is about sowing, and oftentimes it's sowing in tears. But one day you will reap, because one day Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it is going to be a celebration and there will be shouts of joy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But until he returns, we sow. We sow abundantly. We do the good of restoring one another. We do the good of bearing one another burdens. We do the good of, of giving our resources and time and energy away for those purposes and we do it in tears, knowing that our tears will not last forever. They will not. When Jesus returns, he will dry up every tear, every tear. And we will reap a harvest. And so in light of that, he says, let us not grow weary. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Let's pray. Father, many of us are weary. Some of us come today literally feeling like we're standing on the edge of a cliff, feeling like we have nothing left, that we're absolutely weary and done with doing good, with living a life of obedience to you. Oh, Father, we 
Would you remind that person? Would you remind your child that we sow in tears, but we will reap with shouts of joy? And Father, would you break down our pride that when we move into someone's life who has been caught in sin, that we would believe functionally at a heart level that we are absolutely capable of the same sin and by your grace are not in the same place, not by our hard work. Father, would that cause us to be a people, to be a community that moves towards those caught in sin with great compassion and great love and great gentleness and great humility. And may me be a community that sows the word of your gospel in great abundance, that we would do it in tears, that we would do it with sacrifice, knowing that one day every tear will be dried up. Oh, Jesus, we long for that day. Would you come quickly? Would you dry up tears? Would you bring your kingdom? We await and long for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We want to sit around your table. We long for that, Jesus, and we ask you to come quickly, but until you come by your Spirit, would you give us the strength to sow faithfully and abundantly with sacrificial tears? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.